0: Welcome to the Retirement Made Easy podcast. I'm your host, Greg Gonzalez. My goal for the podcast is to help you live a better life in retirement by giving you the tools and information you need in a language that you can understand. Most listeners know that I am a financial planner in St. Louis, Missouri, with clients in almost 20 different states, been doing the podcast almost two years now. And over the last six months, I've started to notice the popularity of the listenership to our podcast has really taken off. We've received a lot of emails and questions from listeners. And on today's episode, we're going to be highlighting some of the best questions that we heard from listeners so far in this two-year journey of a podcast. If you're a new listener, I want to encourage you to check out our website. Like I said, retirementmadeeasypodcast.com. There's a lot of free resources that are available to you. If you're wanting to plan for your own successful retirement, you can download those right on the website. And then also we offer to only our podcast listeners our very own pre-retirement assessment. So this is for the people that are maybe a couple years out from retirement and want to know if they're on track. Are there any gaps in their current plan? And was really created because so many people are looking for that honest assessment of where they stand when it comes to retirement. So again, that's available on the homepage of our website. You can read about it and schedule your introduction phone meeting to get started with that. Just a quick reminder for all podcast listeners, if you do have questions that you're looking for help with, you can submit those questions to my website, retirementmadeeasypodcast.com. At the very bottom, it'll say, ask Greg a question. You can submit your question right there, and I'll get back with you, and I might even use your question on a future episode. Also, for the people who may want to be more private with the questions they have, maybe they have questions that are very specific to their personal situation, we are now offering a 30-minute complimentary retirement coaching call where we can talk about the questions you have about retirement, where you may be going wrong. Whatever your questions or concerns, we can address them on this 30-minute retirement coaching call. So you can schedule that right through my website, retirementmadeeasypodcast.com, on the home page, right at the top, it'll say schedule your 30-minute retirement coaching call and it's connected there's it's linked to my calendar so you can look at my calendar and find a time that works for your schedule. So I'm really excited to start connecting with listeners of this podcast on a 30-minute retirement coaching call where I can really help one-on-one. Let's jump into these questions on today's episode. Question number one comes from Jennifer, and I've talked about her question is is very good. It's, It's very interesting as far as 401ks, the match, vesting and all that good stuff. But Jennifer emailed in, wanted to know if I could explain the match. And she was under the impression where if you roll over your old 401k from a former employer, that the match would apply to that rollover. So let me make this real life here. Let's say Jennifer had a million dollars in a, I like to use round numbers to keep it simple, right? So, a million dollars in a former 401k for, you know, an old company she used to work for. Let's say she rolls that million dollars into her new 401k with her new employer and they offer a 5% match. She was told, or someone told her that that million dollars would come over and she would get that $50,000 match. 5% of a million dollars is $50,000. So she said, "Why wouldn't I roll that old 401k into the new 401k and get that full match?" Well, unfortunately, Jennifer, the match does not apply to rollover money that came from a former 401k or something like that. It's only the match only applies to your current contributions from your paycheck while you're working for your new company. So in other words, let's make it simple. Let's say Jennifer with her new company earned $100,000. Again, round number. The way the match would work is, let's say it's 100% of the first 5%. So for the first $5,000, 5% of 100000 that Jennifer contributes to her new 401k, her company would match that dollar for dollar. So again, I'm kind of glad and you'll never see rollover money from an old 401k into your new 401k. That money is never going to be matched. I think that would kind of incentivize people to switch companies to another company that has a good match and then not stay there long and then roll it over again to get another match. And then there's also, in Jennifer's question, she wanted me to explain the vesting schedule and how that worked for the match. There's many different vesting schedules that employers can choose from, right? But most commonly, it's a five-year, 20% per year. So in my example, Jennifer's new company matches 5%. You'll see why I did this. A typical matching schedule will be 20, 40, 60, 80, and then in the fifth year, you would be 100% vested. So meaning if Jennifer left in year two, well, she would only be 20% vested and she would only be able to keep in her 401k 20%. If she left in year three, well, before her third anniversary with the company, she would be 40% vested. So the money that the company matched, she would only be able to keep 40% of it. So why the vesting schedule is there is to keep people employed with the same company. It's kind of incentivizing people to stay long-term, at least work five years for a company. There are other vesting schedules that vest after three years. So... Every company, again, might be different, have a different vesting schedule, so keep that in mind. It's a great question to ask when you're in that hiring process with a new employer. What is your vesting schedule? What is the match? What does that look like? I know that can be confusing for a lot of people. The next question comes from another female listener named Betsy. Betsy asks, Greg, I have a question about my husband's pension. We have differing opinions on how he should claim his pension. I am afraid that his pension will default or not be there down the road, whereas my husband wants a monthly check for the rest of his life, just like his father had. I think my husband should take the lump sum because my uncle's pension went bankrupt and had financial issues and his pension got cut big time. We also don't need the monthly income every month because we can live fine on our social security because we're debt-free. What do you say to me and my husband? What would you recommend? Well, Betsy, it seems like you've got kind of got your mind made up because it seems like you were scarred from your uncle's experience with his pension. And your husband, on the other hand, He thinks that his dad had a blessing with a pension for the rest of his life, so he sees the value in a monthly paycheck. But you also said that you don't need the monthly income, so that's another concern that I had. I would want to look at how well-funded is the pension, so I would want to look at some of the documentation to show me that. I would also want to know if the pension offers a partial lump sum. That might be a little middle ground, a smaller monthly... Annuity pension, as well as a a partial lump sum that you could roll over to an IRA or something like that. I would also be curious. It it sounds like you're both collecting your Social Security benefits at this point, but what other retirement resources do you have? Do you have a 401k Roth IRA or something like that? So, if you don't have so much saved for retirement, in other words, if your retirement nest egg is really made up mostly of this lump sum pension, right, and the value of that lump sum, well, then you've got liquidity concerns, and it may make more sense to either take a partial lump sum or a full lump sum. And then you've got to ask yourselves, well, how are we going to invest this money to make sure it lasts as long as you do and or even longer, hopefully? And then also that it's invested properly to suit your comfort level. And then, of course, another consideration is the tax benefits. What is your tax situation going to look like if you do take the monthly annuity pension option and your Social Security versus taking the lump sum option and rolling that over to an IRA? So you would want to look at both sides of the coin and say, okay, let's make a comparison from a tax standpoint. And that may help you decide. So I hope that helps, Betsy. If you have any questions, you know how to reach me. There's a lot of unknowns that I don't know about your situation that would really dictate some of the decision-making. But hopefully you and your husband can come to an agreement that you're both comfortable with. The next question, it's a little confrontational, if you will, from a listener named Bob. And Bob seems a little upset from listening to a previous episode where I was talking about Wells Fargo and possibly Bank of America. I don't remember. And this is a long email from Bob, but basically he's saying that there are some good people that work at Wells Fargo and Bank of America. And I shouldn't be so harsh on the banks. I replied back to Bob. I appreciate his comment, but I'll kind of recap. What I was saying was sometimes we do things emotionally that may not be the best financial choice. Some people may be able to self-insure for long-term care insurance, but they go ahead and buy the long-term care policy just because they like that peace of mind. Now, the example that I gave personally was my mortgage company got bought out. My loan was bought out by Wells Fargo, and I immediately went and refinanced because of how much I dislike Wells Fargo, and I didn't want Wells Fargo to make a penny off of me if I could avoid it. Now, it cost me money. Of course, I had closing costs, and refinance costs. So financially speaking, this was not a very good decision on my part, but emotionally, it made me feel fantastic because I don't have to call myself a customer of Wells Fargo. Now, why Wells Fargo? Why do I not like Bank of America or Wells Fargo? Well, Google, you kind of do your own research. Wells Fargo and Bank of America both have unfair trade practices, not only to veterans, they were charging excess fees that were not disclosed to a bunch of veterans in VA loans, and they settled for hundreds of millions of dollars. They were ripping off veterans in this country on VA loans, admitted it, and settled. And then for years, Bank of America and Wells Fargo were ripping minorities off by charging them higher interest rates than they would charge a Caucasian with the same financial situation and with a last name of Gonzalez and having many veterans in my family, I don't want to be a customer of Wells Fargo or Bank of America. I think they're despicable banks. But Bob, I appreciate your email. I'm not calling your kids ugly or anything like that. I think there are some terrific people that work for both banks. I'm not calling those people bad. I'm calling the bank's business practices unfair and unethical. So that's the chip on my shoulder about Bank of America and Wells Fargo. I'm never going to be a customer of theirs. Now, Bob, I mean, I can take it one step further and say, okay, if my financial advisor is at Bank of America Merrill Lynch or is at Wells Fargo, well, guess what? Those banks impose sales quotas on those advisors, meaning if they don't hit their sales quotas every month, they lose their job. But Bob, I appreciate your comment. Because I am not saying that financial advisors at Merrill Lynch, Bank of America, or Wells Fargo are bad financial advisors. I'm just pointing out that they have unethical business practices like these sales quotas that are not in their client's best interest. So if your retirement planner works for Bank of America or Merrill Lynch, and they're suggesting or recommending an investment whatever it happens to be, you might think to yourself, is this really in my best interest or is this going to help this person meet their sales quota for the month? Or at least that's what I would be thinking. But Bob, again, thank you for your question. Thanks for listening. It sounds like I ruffled some feathers and that was not my intention. I don't think the people that work for Bank of America or Merrill Lynch are bad people because I know that they're probably the ones that are not making the rules that they have to follow. So I hope that clears things up, Bob. Thank you for your question. The next question was from a listener that said, how do advisors get paid? They were looking at interviewing advisors, but kind of wanted to know, okay, do they charge you a big commission to get into investment products? Their neighbor had said as high as 10% commissions and to beware, like whole life policies that their neighbor bought, I guess, had a really high commission. But this listener wanted to know, how do advisors get paid? How do you pay someone for their financial advice and their financial planning? So this is a great question, and it really depends on which advisor you go see. Some advisors will only make money by selling investment products or offering investment products where they make a commission. So there are some advisors out there that are truly transactional and commission-based. So how that works is it's kind of like a real estate agent. You purchase an investment product and they make a commission. It's anywhere from a couple percent to a lot of percent. For me personally, I think there's kind of a conflict of interest there because if an advisor only gets paid based on you buying or selling different investment products, that seems to be a conflict of interest in my mind. And so if the advisor calls you up and says, hey, we need to make a switch from investment product A to investment product B, you might think to yourself or I would, is this really in my best interest or does this advisor need a new set of tires on his car? And he or she is just looking to earn an extra commission. So that's one way, the commission-based way, where an advisor can make money, you know, can earn a living. For me personally, the only commissions that we earn are based on term life insurance or long-term care insurance, something like that. Insurance-based, it's insurance coverage, it pays commissions to the advisor. That's how they pay out commissions there. The other way, which is I do here and there, seldomly, I would say, is hourly planning fee. So, you know, for example, I charge $200 an hour for some of the financial planning that I do for people, very similar to an attorney. There are a lot of advisors out there that do not charge hourly. In fact, their company won't even allow them to charge hourly. So again, what I'm getting at here is some advisors will have different methods of their compensation than others. It's a very fair and great question to ask as you're interviewing advisors. The other way, and it's becoming more and more popular, this is the way I'm primarily compensated, is an advisory fee arrangement. So it's just a flat annual fee that comes out of the investment accounts and it's charged, it's broken up quarterly So it doesn't come out all at once or all at the end. It's kind of pay-as-you-go throughout the year. And if you're ever dissatisfied, you can stop paying that fee and move elsewhere and work with another advisor. So that advisory fee, for most fiduciary advisors, that's kind of the way this industry is headed. As a rule of thumb, as far as an advisory fee percentage, it's somewhere between 1% to 1.5%. If you're working with a big, big net worth, it's probably Less than 1%. So I hope that helps. Those are the three ways. Again, commissions or a commission based compensation, hourly fee, just like an attorney, they charge you by the hour, right? And then an advisory fee, management fee that would come out of your investment accounts. So, not to correct this listener, but I am not personally commission based with, again, anything besides like long term care or term insurance. And a 10% commission is just so far fetched that, you know, for anything I do. So that's just not even uh, in the ballpark. So, not to say that there are some other investments that are sold by commission based people that you would pay a 10% commission. I am just not aware of any. So I hope that helps. That is it for this episode of the Retirement Made Easy podcast. I hope you've all maybe learned something and enjoyed these listener questions. They're submitted from people just like you. You can submit your question. Go to our website, retirementmadeeasypodcast.com. I'll see you next week for a new episode of the Retirement Made Easy podcast. And remember, always dream big. Unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. The SmartVestor program is a directory of investment professionals. Neither Dave Ramsey nor SmartVestor are affiliates of St. Louis Retirement Advisors or LPL Financial. There is no guarantee that a diversified portfolio will enhance overall returns or outperform a non-diversified portfolio. Diversification does not protect against market risk. All investing involves risk, including loss of principal. No strategy assures success or protects against loss. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, Memra Finra, SIPC.